Amen. Well, good to have you in God's house today. We're glad that you're here with us today. We want to get into God's Word now, and we want to begin to have the Spirit of God speak to us and speak to you in a personal way. The topic today is a little more difficult. It's life after divorce. That's the title of my message, life after divorce. Now, if you're a visitor here today, this is not going to be a crowd favorite. I can promise you that. Okay, but I'm going to just continue to go through the book of Mark, verse by verse, and I'm going to cover every uh, chapter in the book, and I think that's what God intended for preachers to do, is to teach this book. And so sometimes you come to topics that are a little more difficult than others, and this is one of those difficult topics for so many reasons, and so I just ask that you stay with me through this message and uh, get the whole thing before you really try to make a conclusion about it, because... I have a lot I would like to say to you today. So take your Bibles now to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Mark 10, verses 1 to 12. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and began beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and according to this custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question whether it is lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered, and he said to him, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again and said to them, Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. You may be seated. Life after divorce. That's the title of my message today. And the word divorce assumes love is a complicated thing. Love is a complicated thing. <laughs> love starts out with all of your heart on fire. Just like the Oak Ridge boy sang, Elvira, my heart's on fire for you. Boy, when it starts out, it's like that. Oom, papa, papa, mau, mau. I hold silver away. I love that song. I love that song. Elvira, that's how love starts. Your heart's right on fire, but the heart that starts right on fire doesn't always end up like that in the end. Because not only do you love someone with all your heart, and when it begins, it's so exciting and so full of hope and prospect, but love also hurts. Love also hurts. We all want it. We all need it. And sometimes we all try to dodge it. Uh, for whatever reasons, maybe it's because love is expensive. Maybe it's because love requires an openness that is very unsettling. But somewhere down the road, someone will break your heart. Someone will break your heart. 
And that's part of the process. I believe that with all my heart now as I stand here looking at my life. But that's part of the process to determine how tough your love is, how strong you are to the challenging times of love. It's also true that sometimes that love will end and die. And your heart will try to find ways to lock out the pain. I was on a layover in Nashville not too long ago. And so I went into the bookstore there at the airport terminal. And I was looking for a book to read. I didn't have any with me at the time. And so I picked up one by John Carter Cash, Jr., the son of Johnny Cash. I don't know if you read it. He wrote it about four or five years ago, called The House of Cash. He wrote the memoirs of his dad's life and some of the struggles they had as a father-son relationship. He wrote something there that I'm going to read, and I want to apply to every divorced person in this room. I like it. I like it a lot. I think it was the best line in his book. True love is many things and can survive the strongest and most painful times. When love comes out on the other side of a fire, it may be scarred forever. But this bruised love is somehow the greater for having survived the pain. I like that. I almost called this message bruised love. Because of Johnny's son. But I want you to think about that today as I get into this message today because this topic of divorce is not easy. Many in our church here have been impacted by divorce. There are some in this church who've been divorced. There are some whose kids are kids of divorced parents. And there are some parents who have kids who are divorced. And there are some married people here who are contemplating divorce. The challenge for me today is to preach the text and explain what it means, which will raise questions in people's minds. You can't just get this all out in one message, but I'm going to give you an overview at least of Mark 10, 1 to 12. So the question I have for you today is do you believe Jesus wants what's best for you? I want to ask you to let him speak to you and share his mind and heart from the word through me. Let's take our cue from him, not from culture. We march to the beat of a different drum. We march to the lead of a different drummer. So I've outlined the message, when a marriage struggles, remember three truths to find God's heart for marriage. Three truths. I want to give them to you today. Number one, the trap of culture. The trap of culture. Now, in this particular passage, Jesus has just come into the region of Judea. That's important. You need to note that. He has not been in Judea but one or two times for festivals in his whole life. He has spent most of his ministry in Galilee. But he is in transition from Galilee to Judea, and this section, Mark 8 to 11, is on the way to Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, he is going to speak often of his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he's going to speak often of what it means to be a disciple who has to also bear a cross. Specifically, it is going to be the cross in marriage. 
And so he's going to talk about that on the way. And he uses these, these uh, Pharisees that are going to test him. The Bible says they were testing him and they asked him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. They are not interested in his view on divorce and remarriage. They're testing him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something that can put him in a trap that will cause him untold heartache in Judea, more specifically Jerusalem. The question you have to ask as you read this is, what's the trap? What's the trap? And so it's not evident as you read it from our culture. So let me tell you two possibilities from everyone who has studied this extensively. Two possibilities on what is going on here. First is an emphasis on Herod. That's part of the trap here. It could be part of the trap. The emphasis on Herod. See, on the one hand, Jesus just came into Herod's territory, Judea. He just got right into the edge of Judea. And that's why the Pharisees were waiting, waiting to ask this question to him. And the reason is, is because this is where Herod just three years ago was accused of adultery by John the Baptist for taking his brother's wife, Herodias, who divorced his brother and married him. It caused a war, by the way, in that region. You just don't know much about that, but that one act caused a war, and John the Baptist said, that's adultery. <laughs> so Herod had his head cut off. So one possibility is that they're hoping Jesus will say, no divorce, no remarriage, and therefore, they'll be sure to go straight back to Herod, and hopefully Jesus will die like John. That's their plan. That's their trap. That is one strong possibility based on the context. The second possibility is that there's been a Jewish controversy for years over this one verse in the Bible in the Old Testament on divorce. There's only one. And the reason there's one, well, I ought to read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, if you do want to follow along with me on this, because it's a very important verse, because it's the only time this really is mentioned in the Old Testament. It says in verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. That's the one verse on divorce. That's a law in the Bible. So what does that mean? Well, what the Jews wrestled over and what they fought over were two views of thought on the word some uncleanness. When can you get a divorce? What is some uncleanness? There was two views. There was the conservative view, which was the school of Shammai. And the school of Shammai said the only things you can get divorce on for some uncleanness is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. There was also the liberal view, which is the school of Hillel in Jesus' day. And they said that some uncleanness is a broader term in the Hebrew and can mean for any good reason that the man sees fit. And by the way, it was incredibly hard for a woman in the Jewish culture to get a divorce. Now, in the Roman culture, women were getting divorces all the time at this time, but not in the Jewish culture. And so a man could go for any reason he wanted any time his wife failed him. Maybe he burned the meal. That was one thing recorded in a divorce case. Or he embarrassed, she embarrassed the husband. 
or she couldn't have children. And these were called, what we would call in our culture, irreconcilable differences. So in Judea, in that day, the liberal view won the day because they followed the Roman culture. And so the Judeans and these Pharisees specifically said that divorce is okay for any reason. Now, if you study a little of the Roman culture and their history, you would understand how much more common it was. Seneca the Younger, a great philosopher of the Romans in the first century, said this about divorce. They divorce in order to remarry. They marry in order to divorce. Women mark the years not by the names of the rulers, but by the names of their husbands. What would you get divorced for in a Roman culture or in a Roman city? Some of the things they got divorced for were adultery. Or if a man had more than one wife, one of the things she could not do was poison the other children. And that's one of the reasons they got divorces, because they tried to poison the other children for the inheritance of their own children. Counterfeiting your husband's keys. He had a safe, and if you counterfeited those keys to the safe, you could be divorced. And so those were some typical reasons in that day of why people got divorces. Now, what the Pharisees were thinking here is either way, political with Herod or theological with the Scriptures, this guy's in a trap. Jesus is in a trap no matter which way he goes. So we got him. The trap is set. Now, Jesus wasn't much concerned about either of those traps, but what he wanted most of all to speak was the will of the Father. And so he wanted to speak in truth and honor to everyone in situations like this. So Jesus says to them, what did Moses command? What did Moses command you? Now, I want you to understand this to help you a little bit here. He's changing the question. He's changing the question. Because Moses never commanded divorce in Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 like I read. He never commanded divorce. So the Pharisees kind of bring their little boys in and say, come in here, boys. Let's, you see what he's doing? I see what he's doing. He's trying to get us on a technicality, and so let's not let that happen. So they quote Deuteronomy 24, and they say, well, maybe it was never a command by Moses, but surely he allowed to write a divorce certificate. So what they were saying is, Jesus, we want to know, how much license do we have to get a divorce? What's the rules, Jesus? Tell us. In other words, don't change the subject on us, Jesus. Answer the question. Now, this is what you need to understand about this. From Jesus' standpoint, they're asking the wrong question. They're asking a dumb question. Notice Jesus' answer in verse 5. He said, the reason they gave the allowance of a certificate of divorce is because of the hardness of your heart. Somewhere you killed what was in your heart toward the other person. You hardened your heart. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and they too shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, they're saying, when can we get divorced? What are the grounds for divorce? What Jesus was saying is, in the beginning, from the beginning of time, marriage was created to be permanent. It was created to be permanent. 
a monogamous relationship between a male and a female. That's the only way. A monogamous relationship between a male and a female. It's the only way that God has ordained in the Word of God. Divorce was a concession to the husband who would not do what, called him, what God called him to do because he hardened his heart. So they asked, but how can we get out of it? How can we get out of it? That's the trap of the culture. Can you imagine the Lord making a covenant with us, going to a cross and dying for us, and somewhere down the road, maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years, saying to the Father, I'm sick, I'm sick and tired of the way that person keeps failing me. I want out. I want to break the covenant with them, Father. Can you just imagine that in your own eyes, your own imagination? And so, to many, the contract of marriage today is, and I want you to hear this, if you don't perform in the right way, it's over. It's over for whatever reason. What the assumption behind that is, the marriage relationship isn't a covenant of unconditionalness, it's a covenant of performance. It's a covenant of works. I've got to earn the right to stay in this relationship. And the Pharisees believed the pro-divorce liberal view. You can end the relationship for any good reason. Someone fails in the marriage, it's over. You didn't measure up. Marriage becomes a contract of performance versus a con covenant of unconditional love, which is to picture Christ and His bride, the church. I mean, can you imagine if the Holy Spirit broke His covenant with the Godhead? Just, just try to fathom that for a minute. The Holy Spirit's ticked off at the Father and the Son. And so He's ticked off at the Father and the Son and says, I, I just, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. You two treat me like I'm a ghost. You two treat me like I'm invisible. You see, Jesus is saying, well, you, you kind of are. That's it. I'm out of here. I mean, can you just imagine that, how, how, how that would be? That's, that's kind of the implication here of thinking it through from the Godhead's perspective. The assumption of many people entering into a marriage contract is, what can you do for me in this marriage? And what should you never do to me in this marriage? And if you don't measure up, it's over. It's over. Now, let me take a story from my life so you get the feel for what the, uh, the uh, Pharisees are actually doing here. Um, I've told this story before, but I'm going to add to it something that didn't happen. I just want you to hear it. Uh, this is the best way I could think of explaining it. My daughter was 15, and she wanted to go on a weekend retreat with another church and their youth group because there was a guy in that youth group, and she was about 15 and a half years of age, and she wanted to go on that trip with them, and... Uh, I wasn't too keen on it, neither was my wife, and I was just a little nervous about this trip, and I said, no, you can't go. That's what I always say when I don't know what to say. No, you can't go. Well, this girl broke me down. I mean, a 15-and-a-half-year-old boy, they can break you down. She begged me. She begged me. She begged me, please let me go on this retreat for the weekend. So while she's begging me day after day after day, she vexed my soul. She's begging me day after day. My wife and I every night are talking about this because this is like a, the first time we've had a 15-and-a-half-year-old and we're thinking this through and we're saying things like this. Well, we can't keep her locked up for 40 years. That hasn't worked so far. Uh, she is showing maturity. 
And we do want to show her that we can trust her. So we finally came to the decision after this constant begging. I said to her one day, I said, Allie, you can go. You know what she did? She squealed. She squealed like a little girl and just was thrilled. I mean, she just squealed out loud. And I said, now there's some ground rules. Some ground rules. You can go with this guy who's in another church to his youth group retreat. But I want you to understand, if you do go, I don't want you alone with him. I don't want you alone with him. I, I want you to promise me that you will stay with your friends when you're with him and you won't be alone with him. I said, I'm going to trust you to do that, and I'm going to let you go, but I am a little nervous about this, but this is what I'm going to do. So she said, so I can go? I said, yeah, you can go, but, but those are the ground rules. How about the ground rules? Yes, yes, and she squealed again. She squealed again. Now let's just imagine, what if my daughter had said to me, this didn't happen, but this is what I imagined as I thought about it. What if my daughter had said to me, well, I have a question for you, Dad. What if I do? What do you mean, what if you do? What if we get there and I want to be with the boy alone and I don't want to be with my friends and the boy together and I want to be with the boy alone? Huh. Trip rescinded. Trip rescinded right there. It's over. It's over right there. This is what the disciples are doing, or this is what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. They don't want to focus on the original. God said in the beginning, what they said is, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? Jesus said, I want a lifelong relationship. And you say, yeah, yeah, I know, Jesus. What happens if I want out? What happens if I want out? See, it misses the point. It misses the whole point of what Jesus just said. Now, some here may be married and contemplating divorce. And maybe your spouse doesn't even know that's in your mind. But I'm going to tell you, if you're in that situation, I want to say this very clearly. God doesn't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. Just based on what I just read to you, just taught you in that simple, God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to work it out. I can promise you that from the heart of God. He wants you to work it out together and try hard to salvage the relationship. That's Jesus' voice speaking from Matthew or from Mark chapter 10. On the other side are other voices that are going to be in your head too. If you're contemplating that right now, other voices in your head are going to sound like this. You're going to go to your best friend or you're going to go to your, one of your girlfriends and they're going to give you some very bad advice. But you're not going to hear it that way. You're going to hear it that they're supporting you. But it's going to be bad advice. And you're going to tell the struggle in your marriage to your girlfriend, and she's going to say something like this. Well, I wouldn't put up with that. Or a, father's going to go, or a son's going to go to his father, and he's going to tell him about his wife. And the father's going to listen to that, and the dad's going to say, if your mother ever did that to me, she'd be out of here. You, you, you don't need to put up with that. I want to tell you something right now, okay? They are not speaking truth from the word. It's very important you hear that. 
because this is God's word spoken to you. That is the trap of the culture. Okay, number two, let's go on. The truth from our Lord, the truth from our Lord. I already read verses five to eight, so I won't read them again. But Jesus said in the beginning, before sin entered the world, before sin ever came into the picture, why do we get divorced today? Sins entered the picture. Why does it rip our hearts? Why does love hurt? Sins entered the picture. Why do marriages not just fall in place? Why does sin enter the picture? But Jesus said in the beginning, marriage was created to be permanent permanent. The first creation account is mentioned there when he said he made the male and female. Now, why does he say that there in verse um, 6? God made them male and female. He's talking about the creation account in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, he's talking about it from another perspective. But in Genesis 1, he's emphasizing the equality of the relationship. The male is equal to the female, and the female is equal to the male. One is no greater than the other, any more than the way God designs his trinity. He have God the Father is equal to God the Son, is equal to God the Holy Spirit, is equal to God the Father. There is no one greater in the trinity. They are all equal in what we call their essence or their soulishness. The soulishness of a person is equal whether they're male or female in this relationship. So that's the first thing Jesus tells them. The second thing he tells them is not only is there an equality of the relationship, but in the second creation account, now he talks about the roles of the male and the female. And he says, for this cause, here's what a man's got to do. He's got to leave his mom and dad, and he's got to cleave or be joined to his wife. So you got, you got this movement of the man that moves and initiates toward the woman. And the woman responds to that initiation, and they become one flesh. They're equal in their essence, in their soulishness, in the soul, the way that God designed their soul, they're equal. But in their roles, the man leads, the woman responds to that leadership. Just like in the Trinity. The Father's equal to the Son, equal to the Holy Spirit, equal to the Father, but the Father's the head of the Trinity. The Son submits to the will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. The Father's the head. He's the leader, yet he's no greater than Jesus. He's no greater than the Holy Spirit. He's equal in his soulishness, if I could use that word, or beingness, and yet at the same time, one leads and one implements the leadership. That's how a marriage relationship works. And so that is the essence of what he's saying here. So he says the first thing that man's got to do as he initiates in his life is he's got to leave mom and dad. He's got to... The word literally is a strong word in Hebrew back from Genesis 1 to abandon the relationship. That's strong. It's a great relationship, parent and child, but it cannot be greater than the bond of the marriage. There must be this severance of the relationship, a severance of what's going on. So it doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to your parents. You always have a responsibility to your parents. But now once you choose to enter into a covenant with your wife, now it changes the relationship with your parents. Your first loyalty must be to her. To her. That's severance. And then there must be permanent. It must be permanent. He says, what well, God had joined together, let not man ever put asunder. And that word permanent, or that word there, joined, is the word to weld. If you know anything about welding, the welding becomes greater or stronger than the metals themselves. So 
There must be a welding together. It must be permanent. Number three, God sees them not as two people anymore, but two become one. There's intimacy. There's intimacy. The man initiates, the woman responds, and there's a one fleshness in the relationship now. They are one flesh. They are joined together. It's beautiful to think about this at so many levels. At the end of the day, if you're married, it's not simply you and your spouse. In God's eyes, it is you, your spouse, and God, just like the Trinity, which is why at weddings you make two vows. You make one to your spouse, but you make one to God. That's what we call the declaration of intent. I've done hundreds of weddings. Do you, John, take Jill to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do you part, according to God's holy ordinance? That's not to her. That's to God. God has designed that every marriage have that declaration of intent based upon Genesis 1 and 2, that you declare, I'm vowing first to you, God, that I'll do that. And then I'm vowing to her in the ring vow that I'll do it to her. See? The, the, that's the way that God has denied, uh, designed it. And so, um, I know some of you are probably in a sigh of relief right now saying, wow, I'm glad I got married at the justice of the peace. Well, the truth is, you're still not out of the woods, okay? It is God's monopoly on marriage. It isn't the states. It's not the churches. It's God's. So no one is out of that picture who makes a marriage covenant. Everyone is in that if you are married. Now, in the context of marriage, Mark is trying to make this a call to discipleship. That's the point of on the way to Jerusalem. He's now talking about a deeper level discipleship. And marriage is the unique one flesh discipleship that you have with no one else. One flesh discipleship. There's going to have to be greater self-denial for that one to work, there's going to have to be greater cross-bearing. It is harder to bear a cross in a marriage. It is harder to deny yourself in a marriage than anywhere else. But God says, this is extraordinarily what I want you to do because this is the best picture of your discipleship. The union should be fought for over and over again if you are called to follow Christ because it's the greatest picture of Christ and his bride, the church. One flesh discipleship. That's what Mark is emphasizing here. Now, if you take my wife and I, my wife doesn't think like me, she doesn't feel like me, she doesn't act like me. But we are one flesh. We are one flesh. You as a couple are one flesh if you are married here today. So any concern she has or he has becomes a joint concern. That's one flesh discipleship. A joint concern to reflect one fleshness as followers of Christ. That's the high calling. That's the highest calling you've got in discipleship. Okay. That leads me to the trust of our partner. The trust of our partner. Now, a lot of people read verses 10 to 12. In the house of the disciples began questioning about this, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she, enters, if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. A lot of people take that verse and they say that that means you cannot have any divorce on any grounds. 
The problem with that is that's the only verse they use. When you do a study on divorce, you have to use all the verses. And so what they argue is there's no grounds or no divorce. And some in the church, I should say the church in general, universal, hold that position. I don't hold that position. One of the major problems with that is that Matthew, on this same topic or parallel passage with Mark, he gives a stipulation in the parallel text of when you can divorce. This is from Jesus, Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, same thing said in Mark, and Matthew adds, except for immorality. Except for immorality. And marries another woman, commits adultery. So he gives a stipulation to say there are times that you can have a ground on Jesus' terms. There are grounds for divorce when there is immorality. Now, what is the word immorality there? It's the word porneia. We get the word pornography from it. And it's a broader term than just adultery. It can be incest, bestiality. It can be uh, ongoing pornography. God permits a spouse of the offended, of the offender, to be allowed to divorce on the basis of except it be for fornication. Now, I'm not going to get into a full-fledged study on this, but I do want you to understand where we are as a church, where I am in my position, and how we've handled these since I've been here. That word is a great word to study out of Kittle's, Kittle's theological word study. There's a 10-volume set, and this man has done extensive work on that to show you what that word immorality means. Now, the question would be then, who's right, Matthew or Mark? Mark doesn't include it. Matthew does. The only answer you can give to that is context. They are emphasizing two different things. Matthew is talking to a Jewish audience, and he's telling them, here's the times you can divorce sexual immorality. You have the right to do that. You don't have to do that, but you do have the option to do that. Mark is not addressing that because he's talking to a Roman audience, and he's talking about discipleship and one fleshness. And so his emphasis is not addressing a Jewish audience or the exceptions. He's writing to address an audience and emphasize that divorce is outside of God's foundational scheme for one flesh discipleship. That's why he never gives you the exceptions. But Matthew does. Now, I can say more to that. I just want you to see that Mark is saying this is a serious covenant to demonstrate a cross-bearing walk with Christ, but he's not giving you the allowances like Matthew does. So one is sexual immorality. The second is that Jesus never says a word about. Jesus does that a lot. Paul has to pick it up. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to speak not the Lord. In other words, the Lord didn't give a commandment on this, but I'm going further to give you further revelation about this. And that second grounds for divorce is abandonment. Abandonment. I'll just read that so you know 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. It's worth it to have you hear that. Paul said, now I'm speaking because the Lord hasn't broach this topic, so I'm going to tell you. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Abandonment. Abandonment. Now, what is abandonment? Well, first of all, there's outright abandonment where the husband just leaves. We've had that happen here. They just left. I'm done. I'm done. Okay? 
This includes more than just the husband leaves. This also includes abuse. Abuse is within this term of abandonment. Abuse that would be physical abuse, for sure, for sure. Abuse by alcohol or abuse by drugs, for sure. Neglect in the relationship. Listen, I've always counseled that. You got somebody drinking in the home and they can be violent, get out. Now, I'm not telling you to go get a divorce. What I am telling you is there are other steps to take, and we're not going to cover that here, but there are other steps of separation that can be done before you ever decide to get a divorce. Another one that would have to be talked through is extensive and excessive verbal abuse. But I'm not going to address that here just to tell you, though, that is possible, but there's other steps, and that needs to be talked through with someone more carefully from the Word of God. But I'm just giving you a broad parameter right now on the concept of abandonment. God gives a provision for the offended one, immorality, sexual immorality, or abandonment, to decide if they want to leave. Now, let's just talk about that for a minute because um, I, I probably, my, my thinking has shifted over the years in the last 25 years that I've been here in my studies. Okay, so let me just say a little more about that. God gives provision for the offended one, immorality or abandonment, to decide if they want to leave. You say, well, pastor, what if they repent? What if the sinful offender repents? Am I obligated to take them back? No. No. You say, I, I thought, I'm not supposed to be forgiven them. You are to forgive them. You are to forgive them, but God is not requiring you to be a spouse again. He has given you two allowances. You better make that decision wisely. I would encourage you to stay, but I'm not telling you you have to stay. I'm not telling you that. And why, Pastor Rob? Why would you say that? Because the trust is broken. The trust is broken. There is a trust that is at the very foundation of a marital unity. And when that is violated, you do not have to require the person to take them back. Some say if the trust that is at the very foundation of that marital union is violated, some would say it's not right to divorce the husband or the wife no matter what. They've repented, they've come back, they want to work it out. I'm saying to you directly from this pulpit, I think and I believe under the authority of God's word that I'm saying to you, we can't take away the rights from people that Jesus gives them. He gives them the right to divorce. I can't see how you get around that. I don't see how you can get around that. I'm saying we can't take away those rights. Well, some will say this because I probably said this years ago, and I won't say it anymore. Take the high ground. The high ground is forgive them and get them back in the relationship, or her or him, get them back in the relationship. Take the high ground. And you should stay with them. That was my, that used to be my position years ago. I'm not doing that anymore. You know why? I'm not saying that anymore, because I'm not going to put people on a guilt trip of the choices they make. I cannot make that call for them. I cannot make that call for them. You're putting them on a guilt trip who God allows to have a divorce because of broken trust, 
Broken trust is so core to a relationship. Now, if the person says, I do want to work on that, I want to build the trust back, it will take a long time, and I admire them for doing that, but they don't have to do that. They have the freedom to make that choice. That's what I'm saying to you. As difficult as that is, and to explain to you, I believe that one of the reasons God does it is because I have seen this where literally they're at each other's throats and they would kill each other. And so in those cases, I would say maybe it's not going to work out. Okay? And so I don't know everyone's got to make these decisions, especially the people who've walked this path. I'm just telling you, I'm giving you the freedom to look at that and say, you're not required to. Would I encourage it? Yes. To give it a try. But I'm not going to put you under any pressure or guilt trip to do that. You do not have to. The truth is God allows us to end our marriages when they've been violated by sexual immorality and abandonment, which is core to broken trust. Broken trust. Now, in my opinion... It is an amazing condescension by God to human sin. But that condescension does not go so far as to say, okay, no fault, divorce is all right. No, I'm not saying that. And grounds of incompatibility is another, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not going that far. I'm just staying with what I think the parameters of Scripture are. Now, when these principles are applied to real concrete life situations, I've learned three things in my 30-some years of ministry Number one, I've learned, it is the most difficult thing in the world to address. Number two, I've learned, I've never seen two cases that are exactly the same. Never. And number three, it takes the wisdom of Solomon to figure it out. That's what I've learned. Dealing with divorce issues, remarriage issues in people's homes. So I'm much more careful about what I say and what I do. Now, I know the problem today is we've lost something in our culture that God has called holy. I understand that. God has called it holy. It is a gift. It is a gift. Marriage is a gift from his hand. It's a gift from his hand. And there's no, nothing more basic and foundational to civilization than marriage and family. Nothing is more basic. So, though the whole world may be going crazy today to this institution, I want to say to everyone in this room, let every Christian be determined to be committed to the sacred institution of marriage. With all the things that I just said to you, in consideration as you walk through your life. I wasn't as confident in the last services, it wasn't this one. And the reason was is because I had so many people come to me and say, I needed... I needed to hear you say that. Let's pray. Father, I lift up our homes. I lift up our marriages. I lift up our fallenness. 
I lift up our hearts. There are some going through this. Not a person in this room knows. They're contemplating divorce. I best try to represent you. And I pray your spirit would speak even if the other spouse doesn't know. I pray for those that have tried to work through immorality or abandonment. My heart's for them. It's difficult, they know it. It's not easy. It comes and goes like the wind. They want to work it out. My blessing over them. And my blessing over those that have ended it. It was their free will choice. It was a permission you have allowed. May they go out with not guilt, but a sense of rest that God's still working. God can still use them. And He can still work a plan in their life. So, God, I pray for that. There is life after divorce. put your hand on all of our marriages. God, I just lift it up to you now. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to lead us in a song. Of course, the altar's open, but there's something you want to bring to the altar today. You're welcome to do that. Let's sing this song today and let's enter in. Let's worship him.